Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard, the president of Gospel App Ministries, www.gospel-app.com. Welcome to the Gospel Rant. We're going through the Beatitudes still, the Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through this for a while. So glad that you're checking us out. Uh, I hope you'll enjoy it. If you've missed the earlier ones, uh, go back. We're at Matthew 5.10 now, but we started at at Matthew 5 and 6. Uh, But we're looking at blessed are those who are persecuted today. I wish Jesus hadn't said this. I mean, look, I mean, honestly, if God asked me, hey, what do I think about this policy? I would say, I mean, with all due respect, Really? I mean, I don't I don't like this one at all, and I'll explain why. But if you do righteousness, if you care for other people in the name of Jesus, if you if you do those sort of things, Jesus is promising that you're going to be persecuted. So there, I, I said it. All right? All right, so blessed are the persecuted. Well, who is the object of Jesus' words? They're the unenviable in this world— right? The poor in spirit, they have experienced loss or hurt or wounding, can't move past it. They're mourning. They've lost face. They're disenfranchised, disempowered, and just can't do anything about it. They want to fix. They want the world to be right, for God to smile upon them. They want a happily ever after. They want security. And look, the change is happening. They're becoming merciful to others, um, right? But they're orphans here. And in a large sense, they don't belong. Now, if you read the Beatitudes, it's not seven different people we've been talking about. It's the same person who has found out that this world will not give them honor and justice and worth and security, uh, enoughness, um, relationship, those type of things. And Jesus promises them adoption. Matter of fact, he proclaims it. He he adopts them into the favor of God. That's the Beatitude number one in 5.3. He promised them that in his arms, they will feel honored again, feel valued, empowered. They'll feel mercy. They'll feel justice finally. They'll feel the blessings of a child of God in good standing. So in our modern language, salvation and adoption, the favor of God. Well, so what are some of the necessary fruits of that, of that adoption, of that coming into the favor of God, that being embraced by a loving God, right? The Jesus event. Well, they're going to feel better about themselves, about their lot, about their lives, about their hope, about their future. They feel they will feel mercy towards others, Jesus says. They're going to feel happier in our terms, joyful. They're going to feel the desire to lean into conflict because God doesn't like conflict, neither, neither do they. And they are leaning be, to be peacemakers. We talked about that in the last two podcasts. So they're becoming good neighbors. They're becoming better friends. They're becoming better husbands and wives and children and uh, the like. They're becoming better members of community. But here we go, Matthew 5.10. Jesus says, blessed are, enviable are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh my goodness. So it's, it's, uh, it's a uh, participle, persecuted one. So Blessed are the ones who are being persecuted, kind of a, a sense that it's not just happening once, it's kind of an ongoing thing, uh, and it includes harassment. Yuck. So let me expand that using my terminology. Jesus is saying, do you know just how enviable you are, you the persecuted ones? Yeah, yuck. <laughs> 
when others have systematically organized programs to intentionally harass and oppress you because you are doing good to others instead of just yourself, reflecting my DNA, my heart to a beat up, marginalized, every man for himself world. So strangely, this persecution seems targeted to Jesus followers because they are doing righteousness. And meaning actions done for others, selfless actions. They're caring for others. They're lifting others up. Well, that's a strange thing on the surface. Like I said, that's a bizarre strategy. If you want to encourage people to do kind things, to be hospitable, to be loving, to be sacrificial, well, the persecution isn't going to help, right? I mean, humanly speaking. So this persecution that Jesus speaks about is not due to struggle over power or differences of opinions and some argument or even prejudice or racism. It is one group angry over another group or individual doing selfless acts for people. It's a reflection of Edenic love lost. I mean, honestly, what difference should it make to the angry group? Why should they be angry if a person decides they're going to do something good? Um, this is the tragedy surrounding Jesus, right? He did nothing wrong. He did nothing selfishly. He healed, he fed, he taught, he comforted, he taught fishing lessons, right? He, he gave up his uh, his uh, glory for a second. I mean, he gave up recognition of who he was. I mean, only the demons really understood who he was. So nothing, nothing he did that in a just or reasonably mentally balanced world whatever caused anyone to want to harm him or mistreat him or prosecute him, much less despise and crucify him, right? He should have been given the ancient version of the Nobel Peace Prize. He had should have had parades in his honor, uh, and not, the, not the, 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 the silly one coming into Jerusalem with the palms and such. He should have been given a teaching chair at Hebrew University. Like Solomon before him, kings and queens should have come to hear him to gain wisdom. But the world was even further off its original kilter. It's cattywampus, we say, down in the south. It's spinning way off its original axis. I mean, instead, the world despised him, persecuted him, murdered him, and all he did was other-directed good deeds. Notice that Jesus is recognizing here at the beginning of his gig that he and his life's work, his righteousness, is going to offend some. So it's crazy naive to buy into the world's shallow and very misleading assessment of Jesus as a good guy, a really good teacher, a role model, kind of a Gandhi-type guy. You know, to know him is to love him. If Christians were just as caring as Jesus, everybody would just follow him, right? Let's just tell people about Jesus and they'll follow. Well, that's honestly, humanly speaking, that's naive because that's not how Jesus was treated. And he was Jesus, right? There's an implied battle, Old Testament, New Testament, between kingdoms, between philosophies, between worldviews that are competitive. One one is intentionally pitted against the other. And of course, it reflects the fall and the attitude of Satan, among other things, our selfishness, our pride, our unwillingness to believe, uh, our uh, relational wounds. Nothing has hurt us more than relationships. And, and you know, to, to be saved means you're in this very complicated relationship with God. 
So my suggestion is that all conflict ultimately stems out of a battle over rightness. Okay, let me see if I can explain that. Worldview number one is simple. It's like the board game Life, remember? Life is a zero-sum game. Everybody is in competition for limited resources and glory and identity and successes and uh, you know limited houses in heaven. And the prize goes to the strongest, the most aggressive, the most fortunate, luck, the one who who went the furthest and didn't make those detours, or or the one who's most attractive or smart or certain sex or certain skin color. Darwin just observed this fallen worldview. He didn't invent it. And ultimately, there's a sense that it's every person for him or herself. The ultimate right, uh, spiritually, is to earn something from God, and then he gives it to you because it's your due. You did it. In worldview number one, you can do good to others, but ultimately, you're doing it to get points for yourself. Now, worldview number two is anti-worldview number one. There is an intrinsic conflict happening in the world. Worldview two seeks the well-being of others over self. It's the kernel, the core of Hebrew righteousness. It's is not worldview number one's every man or woman for themselves. Rather, it's me for every other person. God's DNA is worldview number two. Satan and fallen man's flesh view is worldview number one. And they don't coexist well. They are openly antagonistic, or to be more precise, worldview number one hates worldview number two and ultimately is deeply threatened by it. Well, who is Jesus strongly implying, at least here, right? He's much more direct in other places. Who are the ringleaders of worldview number one? Well, it's the religious. It's the right professionals, those who are committed to one notion of rightness defined by a particular form, formula, spiritual or secular. They're invested, and it's an identity level, and they're easily threatened. So, Matthew 5.11, do you not know how enviable you are whenever people unjustly speak disparagingly of you, intentionally harass you, to purposely make up and say evil things about you? They are deceivers, and all of this is done strictly because you are with me. Hmm. So eventually, when pushed, those of worldview number one bristle at everything about Jesus, right? He looks past the compliments. Oh, teacher, oh, master. I mean, doesn't it explain the times when you share Jesus, grace, 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 and people just get angry? Uh, there was a time I was doing a, a Bible study, discipleship with a person in a uh, a restaurant, and we were really being quiet. We were kind of in a corner and really being quiet. We weren't bothering anybody in tables next to us. And then I noticed from an other side of the restaurant, this guy gets up and storms over to our table and starts yelling at us and, and to tell us to stop sh- Stop talking about the Bible and shut up about this Jesus. And then he stormed out. Honestly, I mean, the, the tables around us were just shocked because they weren't paying attention to what we were saying. And I mean, I I took it as a badge of courage to tell you the truth. I mean, something strange like that happens. But here it is. I was just talking how we can love people better. And the person just flipped. All right. So why are self-proclaimed right people whose identity is shaped and held up by a group of laws so angry at Jesus. Four reasons. First, Jesus and his teachings challenges their rightness. All religious systems, all religious systems, codes of conduct, secular and spiritual, live and die by adherence to the rules. 
right is measured by doing their laws. So to be and do right is defined by the books of laws that they propose. So for the Qumran community, the Essenes, there were guidelines on washing and eating and praying. For certain sects of Pharisees, there were other food laws, other washing laws. So there are by necessity innies and outies, according to the law. Well, according to those laws, Jesus always became an outie. Jesus naturally, I mean, no vindictiveness. He just systematically kept stepping on toes because he was free. He didn't submit to their interpretation of the Torah, the fencing of the law that was prevalent in Second Temple Judaism. Jesus's rightness comes from the Father as an ongoing fruit. It's relational, not based upon scoring points. Jesus is right with God. He has righteousness. God loves him, and Jesus's righteousness, humanly speaking, flowed out of that. By definition, Jesus was a threat to worldview number one. So understand what that would have felt like to a Jewish religious person. It's a gauntlet tossing. It's a slap in the face, and they got it. In their eyes, Jesus was not only non-right, but was a challenge to all the rightness that they understood. He was a viable threat to their invested identity, their intrinsic righteousness, their rightness. So ironically, from the point of view of the religious Jew, Jesus was challenging God's right. I mean, you get the irony, right? If Jesus was indeed God, as the Christians argue, then first century Judaism was way off kilter. This is serious. Jesus, his narrative, his actions, his teachings are a threat to anyone who is trying to be right based upon guidelines other than receiving right as a unilateral, undeserved, incongruous gift from God, the source of all righteousness. Two, Jesus teaches that none of the so-called right are right enough, Matthew 5.20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Well, can you imagine how that went down? I mean, I've, I've been reading some commentaries how we sort of um, kind of powder that down. I mean, what does right, uh, perfection mean? What does righteousness mean and surpassing the Pharisees? No, this was in their face. This was straight up. Jesus' bottom line is that even on your best day, you're not good enough to earn God's favor. Your body of work has just not been sufficient. Your hard efforts to be godly have been judged and have been found lacking. You're a failure at goodness, and there's going to be a trial. You will be found guilty, or there was a trial on the cross, maybe better, And even your best works are filthy, soiled rags in light of the perfection of God, than the perfection God requires. Unless there is a fundamental and extensive system reprogramming, a new heart, you'll fail. Isaiah 64, all human righteousness is filthy rags. So think what it would look like to do church really embracing this. I mean, nothing that I do for you gains any more favor from God than I already have in Christ. Think of the guilt-free efforts, the lack of shame, the lack of clicks, the lack of competition. There, uh, I, I don't need to go to church to earn identity, to look good, right? Jesus, his narrative, his actions, his teachings are a threat to anyone who is trying to be good enough by any law, any code that pushes people to earn God's love. Jesus already did, and he did it for all of his people. Three, Jesus accuses the God-professional right ones of actually persecuting those who really are made right. 
three again jesus accuses the god professional right ones of actually persecuting those who really are made right by grace right so it gets even worse right not only will god grade the god professional right short right they're not going to make a pluses or b's or c's because because jesus says they're the ones who are going to persecute his followers like those on the hillside as they do real right by faith. Well, you know, they're looking out on this crowd of people that didn't live up to righteousness and probably just given up, and that couldn't have been received well. That would have been maddening to to them. You dedicate your life to live by a standard of living. You've been told God prefers that, and you've got this high religious standard that continues to get teased out of the God book. And then here comes a new prophet who says that none of you are right by God's standard, no matter what you do. And not only that, but he's accusing you of persecuting the real God people, right? This is maddening for them. It, you know, it's, it's surprising he lived as long as he did. So Jesus is implicitly accusing them of persecuting God himself. So they're despising God himself. And their well-meaning teachings are way off track. And I do think they're being well-meaning here. I don't think they're evil. It's just they they misunderstood. So Jesus is trying to clear things up, but the way he's doing it, oh, for the first couple of hundred years in the church age, Christians were severely persecuted by those who held other definitions of how humans can be right. For the post-70 AD Jews, remember in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. It was the temple where the Jews would go to be made clean with God. It was the sacrifice, the sacrificed goat on Yom Kippur, where their sins were paid for and removed. And so until that time, they could at least say, we we go to God and, and we're made right. But after the temple and the altar were destroyed, now what? And so post-temple Judaism had to ex- come up with something else to, to that biblically— that makes you clean, uh, other than sacrifice, other than the Day of Atonement. And so Rabbi Yohanan Zakai, one of the few Pharisees who survived the destruction of the temple, he described the things that, that make you clean now. It's not no longer sacrifice, it's, it's Torah study, it's prayer, it's, it's uh, gifts to the poor. Those are the things that substitute for your sacrifice now, right? They had to make an adjustment. Uh, for Romans, it, uh, the things that made you right with the deities was individual strength and courage. For the pagans, it was washings and offerings to the gods. But for the Christians, I mean, Paul and, and John and Peter and Matthew, being right is a gift of God through Jesus by faith. And this is the bloody battle line in the Reformation. Again, this is the core of Christian persecution today, both here and globally. We're the persecution can be brutal. It's ultimately over the source and path of being made right. So it's either by our efforts or by a gift of God. I was sharing this gospel at a regional denominational meeting, a bunch of pastors, church leaders, and I have I had everyone say the simple uncluttered gospel aloud. If you've been tracking the podcast, you've heard me talk about the simple uncluttered gospel right? Here it is. Jesus follower strictly because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago. God actually loves you. 
He loves you with all his heart, as much as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. He can't love you any more or any less than he does right now. He loves you as you are, not as you should be or could be. You can't add to this love or take away from it. So in, in other words, the righteous, your righteousness actually comes as a gift from God because of Christ. 2,000 years ago, his death on the cross paid for your crimes against God, creation, and humanity, and purchased for you all the love in the universe. We don't experience that all the time. I get that. But but there it is. It's ours, and we can ask for that. Well, I had everybody stand up and say this aloud. Later, I was pulled aside by a young pastor who felt the need to challenge my notion of the gospel because he was troubled by this nutty idea that God loves sinners, unrepentant sinners, sinners with no remorse or little remorse who are not seeking to change and reform. He couldn't say in good conscience, tell someone in his congregation who is a Christian, but also an active adulterer or an addict, he couldn't tell them that God loves them as they are, right? They have to do something to change in order for God to love them as they are. And that, he said, thinking that he had made a convincing argument, would be enabling sinners, right? That would cause them to justify sin more in their lives. I mean, if I'm already loved by God, why why do I need to stop? Well, I responded to him, hopefully kindly. I think I did. First, your congregants don't need encouragement to sin. They're already sinning rather well, apparently. So what you're doing, you know, holding the good news back from them isn't really working. Am I right? And second, this is the gospel, isn't it? God loves sinners. That's all there is. He isn't waiting for sinners to be come enough remorseful or to say strongly enough that they plan to stop sinning and show it? I mean, how do you measure that? No, Jesus's death and resurrection purchased all of the love in the universe for them. In fact, it is that love, that being um, held close, seeing the eyes of God dance over you as you are, that empowers you to stop sinning so much anyway. It's the power of God to love other people that causes you to want to love other people. It's his love that you're passing forward. Well, I could go on, but he was offended and thought I was teaching some kind of easy believism. But it's nothing of the sort. It cost Jesus dearly. So the gospel offended a well-meaning religious leader. And that sounds kind of familiar, right? If you're a Jesus follower, if you have the spirit in your inner being, and yet you struggle with some addiction, porn, alcohol, sex, medications, gambling, whatever, I can tell you, again, if you're a spirit-filled Jesus follower, I can tell you that God still loves you. He does, as much as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. In fact, your best hope of diminishing your addictive power in your brain is to ask God to give you his power through the Spirit in your inner being, check out Ephesians 3, 14 and following, and do that over and over and over again so that you would begin to experience the height and width and length and depth of the love of Jesus for you and for others. This is what has a hope, any hope, of displacing and diminishing the addiction. So what if you're a son or daughter of God and you're an adulterer or thief or murderer or gangbanger or betrayer? Pick your poison. You're still loved. And now you're not feeling it, and you're not loving other people, right? But God, because of what Jesus did, period, he still loves you. But you know what? The religious world is going to revile against that stunning message. Have you been told that you're not pure, Christian woman? Not in Jesus' eyes? Well, 
if you're a Christian, you're as pure as can be in Jesus' eyes. He loves you as you are. Oh my goodness, so much more. All right, we're going to pick it up here in the next podcast, continue to talk about persecution, and then we'll also do uh, the screenplay version of the Beatitudes so far. So uh, it's been a while since we've done that, and I really enjoy doing that. I'm just, I've already finished a first draft of my book, The Rabboni, about Matthew and uh, going back and talking about the Sermon on the Mount. It's a lot of fun. It's Matthew is so endearing. I'll say more about that uh, as the, the days go by. Okay. All right, but here are the Beatitudes so far, from 5.3 to 5.11. Enviable are those who were formerly unenviable, because now God is their benefactor and husband. Enviable are the inconsolable, because I will bring them close and comfort them myself. Enviable are the humiliated, the disinherited. They will experience the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Enviable are the ones who are obsessed with fixing all the brokenness and disparity in their own lives, relationships, culture, and in the world around them, particularly related to restoration of favor with God. They will experience that and more. I'll see to it. Enviable are the merciful to others. That tells me that they are experiencing his mercy for them over and over. Enviable are the ones who rest dependent in God's arms like a newborn child. They will see his face smiling upon them and know that he is there for them. Enviable are you who lean into being reconcilers versus dividers. That tells me that you have the new heart of a child of God. Do you not know just how fortunate you are, you the persecuted ones, when others have systematically organized programs to harass and oppress you because you are doing good to others instead of just yourself, reflecting my DNA to a beat-up, marginalized, every person for himself world? Hear this, they can't take the kingdom of heaven away from you. Oh, your happiness, whenever people unjustly speak disparagingly of you, intentionally harass you to purposely make up and say evil things about you, they are deceivers, and all this is done strictly because you are with me. Rejoice, and even greatly rejoice, because your wages, what you didn't earn, but were earned perfectly for you by Jesus, and so it is as if you really did earn them, Your wages are vast in heaven, waiting for you. Don't be surprised that the so-called righteous, the self-proclaimed religious moralist, will persecute you. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We'll pick this up next time in the Gospel Rant, looking at Blessed are the Persecuted. We'll see you then. Take heart, child of God. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for working everything out for my good. Help me trust in your perfect plan. Amen. Father, thank you for loving and caring for me. With Christian prayer meditation, you can pray along to prayers based on specific topics. Go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Christian prayer meditation. You can also download the Abide app for biblical meditations at abide.com.